0: So as uh, I was introduced, my name is Joe Mueller. Um, I'm a member here at Remedy, um, and it's my privilege and my honor uh, to get to share uh, from God's word today. So we're gonna be in Psalm 111. Um, so if you would go ahead and turn there, um, and I'll, I'll start us off with a, a quick little prayer. Uh, so God, we, we come uh, today to hear from you. And so Lord, uh, we pray that we would um, hear your voice today, that this uh, word, this preached word, would have its uh, proper effect upon us, that you would attend our ears to hear what you have to say. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would uh, guide me and tell me uh, the things that I am to say, and that you would keep the hearers from hearing things that I missay, um, and that you would get honor and glory uh, by what transpires now. Amen. And so our our text today is Psalm 111. Um, Let's go ahead and read it. If you would stand to just honor the reading of God's word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous deeds to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him, and he remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So uh, most of your versions, if you uh, pay attention to the little notes there, it's going to have a footnote. And the, the footnote is very important in this uh, context, in this psalm. So just as a side note, sometimes check the notes in your Bible. The, the notes that's going to be in most of your Bible is going to identify this psalm as an acrostic, um, and in the, the ESV, it says, uh, it's, each line begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this is, believe it or not, important for us all to see with this psalm. And it's important because that very first line, praise the Lord, um, in, in the Hebrew, it's the word hallelujah, which should be familiar to us as Christians, because we say hallelujah often. And it's, it's this admonition to praise the Lord. And why this is important is hallelujah does not begin with the letter A. It begins with the letter H, which is like fourth or fifth or sixth in the Hebrew alphabet, right? So this is important because he wrote an acrostic poem. It's supposed to begin with the letter A, but it doesn't. It begins with the letter H. And and so this is important because the author of the psalm, he breaks his own convention before he's even able to begin his poem. He, he sets out in his heart to write this poem, I'm going to make it all beautiful, it's going to have this form and this structure, and it's going to be amazing because I'm going to worship my God most high with my psalm. And he breaks his own convention before he's even begun. He can't help himself with praise. This is puzzling. Like, why would you write an acrostic poem and then break your own plan even before you've begun your poem? That's strange, right? It's like, uh, it would be like writing a sonnet and the first line is not in iambic pentameter if you're into Shakespeare, right? Uh, so, but, but he does this and he, he does this and I don't know why, but here, here is my thought. Here is my thought. My thought is that the content of his psalm, the stuff that he is thinking about, writing, what he is going to say is like a fire burning in his belly. It's like Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He has a fire, a burning fire shut up in his bones, and he is so weary of holding it in, he simply cannot. And before he even starts, he has to cry out, hallelujah, hallelujah because of what he has to say. And sometimes, sometimes I know I am, I am convicted of this, and what's convicted of this is as I was reading this psalm and studying it to, to preach on it, is that I don't read this psalm and many passages of the Bible this way. I don't read it with the fire that the, that the author had when he penned it. I don't read it with the passion that, that gripped that person to write those words. I read it very normal. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord. Like it's nothing. But that's not how it was written. That's not how it was sung by Jesus as he sung the Psalms as a boy and as a man. There is an exclamation point in the text for a reason. And it's there because the writer breaks convention in order to break into praise. He simply cannot help himself. And so this becomes important for us today because his hallelujah is the heading of the, the, the psalm. It's his title. It's the ground from which springs up everything that he has to write and it is what's going to be dripping from our lips as we finish, as we go through the text. And so my aim today my, my weight, my burden is to give you reason to cry this hallelujah, just like he does. And to do that, I want to march down the psalm like he's written it, and I want to I pull out three things, three things that I think the psalmist wants us to do and the Holy Spirit wants us to receive from this psalm today. The first is the psalmist is preparing us for a future of praise. We'll see that in verse 1 through 4, and we'll have a little bonus in verse 10. Verse 10. And he's, he's preparing us for that future by grounding us in the mighty work of Christ, or God, because they're the same, right? Verse 5, 6, and 9. And, and all that is going to lead, so the, the praise, the grounding, in the mighty work of Christ, it's going to give us comfort and guidance for today. We'll, we'll see that particularly in verse 10, but then also really throughout the rest of the psalm. So the psalmist is preparing us for a future of praise. And we're going to see this preparation in the hallelujah, which we've briefly looked at already, the context of where the psalmist will praise, and then also in the way that he describes the work of God in verses 1 through 4. So we've already talked about hallelujah. It's actually a very rare word in the Bible in general. It's only used in 15 chapters, all of them in the psalms, all of them in the last third, and the majority in the last book, the fifth book of the Psalms. So it's very rare. It generally begins or ends the psalm. Um, And here in Psalm 111, right, it tells us what the subject's going to be. It's going to be praise. And and it gives us a clue uh, to what the psalm is going to make us do, which is praise. Now the poem proper, the actual acrostic version, or portion of it begins with the phrase, I will give thanks. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So this this provides us the context of where this praise is going to occur. In the company of the upright in the congregation. The congregation is the, the assembly of God's people in the temple. That is the Old Testament context. It's temple worship. So the the people of God and the place of God singing the praises of God. And then he then makes notes, calling God's works great, splendid, full of splendor, right? Majestic, righteous, wondrous, gracious, and compassionate. And we should pay particular attention to uh, the psalmist calling his works great and majestic because that's going to become important later. And, and the psalmist in verses, really, uh, 2, 3, and 4, he's, he's actually looking backwards, right? He's looking backwards to the, the Exodus event and what God has done for his people at Exodus. And, and he's saying that there will be praise, right? Hallelujah. I will praise. I will give thanks in the gathered people of God for the great things God has done for his people, and particularly the great, wondrous, and righteous works of God. If you're a Bible circler, like if you like to circle words, um, go ahead and circle great in verse 2, righteous in verse 3, and the phrase wondrous works in verse 4, because those are going to be important for us in a second here. And so, this pattern, this praise in the gathered people of God for the great things God has done, is a standard pattern of worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And so, The reason this is so is we're going to quote John Piper again for the third week in the row using the exact same quote, right? Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. And what what John Piper is doing here, I think he's summarizing very well a a huge portion of Scripture. It's very akin to what the Westminster Shorter Catechism does as well in the first question. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is man's goal? What is man going to be doing for all of eternity? What's his goal? What's his aim? What's he's shooting for? And it answers this way. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God, praise him, and to enjoy him forever. So again, the pattern, worship, especially characterized by the phrase, hallelujah, among God's gathered people, For all the great things God has done for us is the end for which every single person in this room was created. And so I, so far we've looked at stuff in the past and now I want us to look ahead to the future. So my my contention, my point is that the psalmist is preparing us for a future of praise. And to do that, we're going to look into the book of Revelation, right? That book that looks way out into the future and to what things are going to be like one day. And specifically, we're, we're going to look at Revelation 19 and Revelation 15. So Revelation 19 begins this way. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice in a great multitude of heaven, right? So here we have the congregation crying out, hallelujah, praise. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. This is a great thing that God has done, meaning the great prostitute here is Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Again, this is a great thing that God has done. Namely, he has judged the enemies of his people among the nations and brought them to ruin and destruction. He has defeated enemies of his people. Flip over to Revelation 15, should just be a few pages back, and here we see the same pattern unfold, right? Praise in the congregation for the great things God has done. Uh, A a Bible sort of scholar, G.K. Beale, he calls this, this section, an echo of Psalm 111, and especially in verses 3 and 4, but I think in uh, 2 through 4, sort of as, as a larger unit Verse two begins, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So he sees people, and and the people from the context of Revelation are are God's people, God's people, God's elect, God's chosen, those who trust in Jesus and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Now, this congregation is standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, and they say, great and amazing are your deeds. So here, here great and amazing, those are the echoes that we see from, from Psalm 111, uh, the, the, the amazing and the wondrous works. So great is uh, great in Psalm 111, and amazing is that wondrous works that we, saw, that we circled. O Lord the Almighty, just, right, just. That's, again, righteousness uh, from 111. And true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? If you remember, verse 10 ends with uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Um, from Psalm 111. Um, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts, have been revealed. Again, the great things God has done. So man is made to worship God in the congregation of his people for all the great things he has done. And so this is, this is extremely applicable, applicable, applicable for us today, right? Because what are we doing here? What are we doing here this Sunday morning? We are God's gathered people, worshiping God, for the great things he has done. And so I would, I would encourage you to cherish this time together. There is no time like Sunday morning where God's people come together and we practice what we will do for all of eternity with God in heaven. And Jesus makes great promises over this time. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We get to meet Jesus as we come to this time on Sunday morning. And so I would encourage you, to be here physically. Like, that's the, the common denominator. you got to be here to be here, right? But then I would also encourage you to be here emotionally. Be here socially. Get to know the people around you. Love on your family, because they are family. The, 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 the waters of your baptismal font, the place where we're dunked, right, because we're Baptists, that is thicker than any blood that exists in this world. We we will be with each other forever. It's a great blessing when our, our physical family is the same as our spiritual family, but it's not that way for everybody. And here, as we gather together, we are with family. We are among our brothers and sisters. We will be with them for all of eternity. And that's a special thing. And it doesn't happen every day of the week. And so I'd encourage you to be here and, and you're all here already, so that's it's it's good, right? Uh, And I'd also submit to you that the Lord's Day, that Sunday, is also set apart for the worship of our Lord. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but also at home, privately. The the Baptist faith and message uh, includes in Article 7 the following belief. The the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and should be employed in exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public, right now this is a public meeting, and private. And so I would encourage you that as you go from here, that you would spend times among your family, worshiping God together here on Sunday mornings, that you would spend time alone, worshiping God on Sundays, because that is what we were created to do, that that Sunday is our, our day of rest, our Sabbath where we anticipate what it's going to be like forever in eternity, which is worshiping God. And so we've established now this pattern, right? Man worships God in the congregation of his people for all the great things he has done. And now I want to put some edges around great things he has done because um, that's sort of a little ambiguous phrase. And I'll, and I'll submit to you that uh, there's, again, another pattern. Like, I love patterns, um, and there's another pattern that I think is seen in, in Psalm 111 and Revelation 15 and 19. And that is our praise is built on provision, the provision of God, and the protection of God. And in, in Revelation, um, we see this protection in that he conquered the beast in its image. And, that, uh, and he conquered those of the number of his name, and, and he destroys Babylon you see that in Revelation fifteen two and nineteen two and three. And then he has provided for his bride in clothing her at her wedding. And that's Revelation nineteen eight. And that clothing is more than just giving her something to wear. It's it's much more than that. We see that provision and protection in our psalm as well. In verse four, we see provision. He provides food for those who fear him. And in verse 6, we see his protection. He gives them the inheritance of the nations. And what this is a reference to is that when the Israelites went into the land, it was already occupied by a bunch of people, right? There were whole nations there, people who were mighty and strong and powerful. And God defeated those people and, and in a very typical fashion. What's the very, how did he defeat the very largest city, the big one, as soon as they walk in? Did they fight a huge battle and defeat everybody by like being really powerful and mighty? No, they walked around the city seven times or seven days. And on the seventh day, they did seven times and they blew horns and then the city is destroyed. So God delivered his people from uh, the people in the land, but then he also defeated Egypt, right? He sent plagues and and he drowned the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, he defeated Og, the king of Bashan, which is an awesome baby name. If anybody's looking for a boy name, Og is pretty cool. Um, and and there's uh, some other kings that they defeated as they approached the, the Promised Land. And so now, in us, in us, right now, God is bringing an utter destruction to the great prostitute Babylon, the bestial word world order that opposes God. And he's doing that through us by us being messengers of grace and mercy and peace to all men and in ourselves as he renews us and makes us more and more like his son. He is defeating the Babylon outside of us and the Babylon within. In the past, in the exodus, God fed his people with manna in the wilderness and now he is feeding us his own body and blood in the wanderings of us His people in the wilderness of this present evil age, the spiritual feeding of God's people by His body and His flesh. For remember, Christ said in John six fifty three, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you." And and this is a this is strange, right? It, it confused the people then, and it can be pretty confusing now. And so I, I think a, The Heidelberg Catechism in question 76, I think, gives us a really helpful understanding of what it means to eat the body and blood of our Lord. It means to accept, quoting now, to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and thereby to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is God's protection for us, right? Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more than just that. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed, governed by one spirit. So God's, the spirit that is in Christ and our spirit, they're one as the members of our body are by one soul. And so, uh, so God protects and he provides for his people. And the question that I would pose to you is why? Why does the great God of all of creation, who created everything, choose to protect and provide for anyone? And our text today tells us why. He provides... Food for those who fear him, verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. God's covenant is why he does these things. God has made a covenant. And our psalm uses forever language to describe it, right? Because he remembers his covenant forever. He commanded his covenant forever. Forever, and this forever language, in other places, is associated with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17 uh, specifically. So 17:7 says, "I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant." So, in it, another way of saying covenant forever, as we see it in our Psalm, to be God to you and your offspring after you, but this. Forever language is not just associated with Abraham. It's associated with David in Psalm two, twenty-three, uh verse five. It's associated with the new future covenant that he's going to make in Isaiah fifty-five three, in Jeremiah thirty-two, forty, in Ezekiel sixteen sixty, and Ezekiel sixteen is the the beautiful it's beautiful passage where God is describing how um, how Israel was born in the wilderness, and though she was a baby, he snatched her up and kept her safe, and he married her, and then she left him, and then but he's gonna come back. And then in, in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six it, it it also includes this forever language, and then it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, or covenant forever. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And so what is the structure of this covenant? What are the promises that are given to God's people through this covenant of grace? Well, God's promise is is, uh, summarized well in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, which is another sort of iteration of the covenant to Abraham. Uh, And the angel of the Lord, verse 15, Genesis 22, 15 the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have, not, you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's God's provision for Abraham. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy, protection, against God's enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And this is the extended blessing to the whole world. Think about Fudd's sermon from two weeks ago, right? Praise, praise is evangelistic, right? And it's to go out to the whole world. And if you are in Christ, you are the inheritor of this covenant. If If you... have questions about that, read the book of Galatians. It, it tries to, to tie who we are as Christians all the way back to Abraham. And and 3.9 is especially helpful in doing that. It says, Galatians 3.9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And so this covenant is a covenant of grace, not works. And, and let me sort of explain that using the drama of history to, to help us all understand the difference between a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. So God created everything, right? There's creation. And God created everything back in Genesis, uh, and he promised man eternal life, which is signified by the tree, uh, the tree of life in the garden, if he would obey the commandments of God, which is signified by that, that no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the way back in the garden, you have do this and live, uh, don't do this and die. And so that, that is a very sort of helpful way to understand a covenant of works. So if you do something, um, you will get something, right? And so most of our lives are lived in the covenant of works. Like you work at a job, if you do your job, they would give you a paycheck. That's like the covenant of works that you have with your employer. Um, if that's not the covenant of works you you have with your employer, I would recommend maybe getting a new job where you can work that out. Because that's sort of important. Do this and get this. Do this and live. But we all know from the story, right, that did not work out well for men. Because man broke God's law. We ate of the knowledge, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, we fell under the curse of the tree. We transgressed God's commandment and now we're all going to die. And now, now, so... So you have this covenant of works, man was in it, man broke it. And so now enter the covenant of grace. And notice that there's important features about the covenant of grace, that they are based on a promise. God promised he would restore man. And he enters God's covenant of grace into the world. So God enters it in, he's like, okay, you failed, but I'm making a promise that's going to depend on me, and I'm going to see it fulfilled. Because God promises deliverance. And he images this deliverance in tons of ways in the Old Testament. And ultimately, he gives us that deliverance in his son. Just a few ways, going back to the garden, after Adam and Eve sin, God makes a sacrifice. And he clothes Adam and Eve in that sacrifice. And as he does that, the word that he uses to clothe them is the same word that's used to describe the priestly garments of the priests in the Old Testament, and so what God is doing is he is restoring man to his place as a worshiper of Yahweh, a worshiper of the Lord, a worshiper of God. But he does it in other ways too. So God made a way, God makes a way to restore man back to him, right, by sacrificing that animal. Um, he does it in other ways in the Old Testament. Just one more, Noah, right? Noah builds an ark, but who shuts them in? God. Who sends the wind to, to, to recreate the world after the waters rise up and cover all of creation. God. And so God makes a way for man. And then he makes a promise at the end of that. He makes a rainbow, right? Rainbow. It's a bow. It looks like a bow. Um, and the bow doesn't point down at man. The bow points up to the sky, to God. And God is making a promise to all of us. He is saying, I will pay the price. I will do it. I will deliver my people. But even in this, this, this land of, of uh, promise, right, the covenant of promise, of grace, um, there is still the law. God's law that he created at creation is still alive, it's still active, it's still good, it's still holy, it's still pure, it's still righteous. Um, and so, God, but God no longer is, is man's relationship in Christ based upon this, our keeping this covenant of works. It's, it's based upon this promise of grace to God's people. And so we should strive to, um, out of gratitude and because God is holy and we want to be like our Lord and master, that we still strive to keep the law. And all this is pointing to one day dwelling and resting in the promised land of God, of, of heaven. And so entrance into this covenant of promise is secured by faith. Again, as you're reading Galatians, just look at how important faith is. And here as as Baptists, our entrance into this covenant is signified and symbolized by our baptism, our dunking. And this covenant is continually renewed by partaking in the Lord's Supper, where we are said to eat the body and blood of the Lord. This covenant is open to all. Young, old, rich, poor, black, white, Greek, Jew, male, female. You only need to believe, that, believe Christ and that he offers his benefits to you personally. Do you believe this gospel? This good news? Do you trust that what payment Jesus made on the cross, he made for you? Do you rely on him and his promise of future protection and provision on the last day? Do you find yourself in this covenant of grace that's built upon the promise of God? Or do you find yourself in this covenant of works that's trying to strive and make sure that you're doing everything right in order to be right with God? Now, if you do, if you do trust in Christ and have placed your hope in him, I want to encourage you now with some truths that I hope will lead and guide you and comfort you. And if you don't, I want to make you jealous for this God. I want you to want what I'm about to say. And so hopefully I've done my job and I've demonstrated that man's aim is to worship God in the congregation of his people for all the great things he has done. And the great things he has done can be summarized as in the two categories of provision and protection. And if you need sort of a helpful way to think of that, just think of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name like praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is obedience. Uh, give us this day our daily bread, provision. Um, and then it, it has, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, protection, so even Jesus sees this in the way that he teaches us to pray to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for protection. Pray for provision. Come to me and worship me. Hallow my name. Make it holy. Praise me. And so, uh, th- But this provision and protection are demonstrated to us. They are demonstrated to us in the elements that we're going to take later today that, that There's a a spiritual eating and drinking of the body and blood of our Lord. Not literally. He's not literally physically present in the elements, but uh, they are effective uh, and active among us. And he is going to protect us and defeat all of our enemies. And that's ultimate protection. That's not freedom from persecution here in this world or even freedom from strife and struggle in this world that we live in, but it's ultimate, right? Jesus said that even though they behead you, not a hair shall fall from your head. Which is a crazy promise. And and what it should signify to us is that Jesus will protect us always, but maybe not in the way that we expect or would like. So, moving in into our sort of last section here where I want to bring comfort and guidance. The big idea for this section comes from verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. The fear of the Lord is a feature of a wisdom literature. It's and it's kind of weird uh, to to us. It doesn't seem like we should be fearing God, especially knowing what Christ has done on our behalf. But I think it basically means this, that knowing the power and majesty and holiness of God should produce an emotion in fallen men because he is powerful and majestic and holy and righteous and mighty and we are sinful and stained and fallen. And these qualities don't mix. They're like oil and water, right? Even though you shake them up, soon enough they're separated again. And the analogy I like to think of is a loaded gun, right? You can even like a loaded gun and have fun shooting it. But when that loaded gun gets pointed at you, either accidentally or on purpose, it's good to be afraid, right? It's good to be like, whoa, stop, 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 right? And, and that is a little bit what it's like. As sinners, the power of God is aimed at us to vindicate his justice by our destruction, And the smoke goes from her, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, the Revelation 19. And so the fear of the Lord recognizes this, God's great power and holiness and righteousness, and tries to align the person with God according to this knowledge. So in the fear of the Lord, both a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves, of men, is seen rightly. And so do you know this God? Do you know who he is his works are great both in scope and in in depth and and they have to be studied to be understood they are full of splendor and majesty they cause feelings of amazement and shock and bewilderment among us they are memorable you won't forget god's works His works are characterized by grace and mercy. He's compassionate. He feeds us richly. He keeps his covenant faithfully, remembering it in verse 6. He gives us an inheritance to live in, verse 6. His hands are faithful and just, verse 7. All his instruction is and can be trusted in every part and at every point, verse 7. His law never changes and epitomizes all that is good and right and beautiful, verse 8. And so here's, here's the part where uh, it's good for us. God turns his amazing face toward you, not in judgment, but to call you into communion with himself. He saves us. Verse 9, he sends redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Another Old Testament story that, that sort of illustrates this is the story of Lot in Genesis 19. God has a port appointed judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, which is supposed to be for us a picture of, of the great destruction of Babylon. And he sends two angels who, uh, who are going to try to find five righteous people, and all they find is righteous Lot. And at night, wicked inhabitants of the city, they come and they try to take the two men and do wicked things. But God frustrates their wickedness, which is good. And they are restrained. And then they tell Lot to go. That destruction is now coming upon the city. But Genesis nineteen sixteen says, but he lingered. Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city, safe from destruction. So the men seized him. Lot Lot must have been wondering uh, what these people are saying real. Is Sodom and Gomorrah really going to be destroyed? Am I going to lose all my stuff, all my precious livelihood, all my sheep and gold? He was torn by doubt. But God grabbed him by the hand. And led him to safety. God set his heart to save Lot. And God sets his heart to save the people of his covenant. The people who trust in him. And though your heart may linger in the death of Babylon. Both internally and externally. God will have compassion and mercy upon you. And snatch you from the city of destruction. And set you outside the city. The great city is going to burn. Babylon the prostitute is going to burn. And the smoke from her will burn continually. So flee from Babylon. The Babylon inside and the Babylon outside. Turn from destruction to God of mercy and grace. Because one day, one day when you are looking back on life and you are in heaven... You will see that the hand of God has grabbed you from that city and plucked you from the fire and taken you outside the city. You will see that and you will cry out, Hallelujah! Great and marvelous are your works. Just and true are your ways, O Lord. You are the king of the nations who, O great God, will not fear you. Who will not glorify your name? You alone, only you are holy, not me, you. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is great, and God turns his greatness upon you, and he wants to pluck you from the fire and set you outside the city. The final feature of the psalm I want you to look at is the exclamation points. What are the exclamation points in this text? The first one, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The second one comes in verse 9, holy and awesome is his name. And finally, his praise endures forever. Let's pray. God, you are great, you are mighty, you are powerful. And you will bring about what you have decreed from the beginning of time. You will make yourself a people who will worship you for all of eternity. And you offer that future to us. You offer it to us. And we enter into that promise, not by works that we do, not by things that we do. Because all that we have done is as filthy rags before you. But you offer us Christ. You offer us hope and faith. And so let us believe in your promise in Christ. Let us be clothed with the righteousness that Christ, he kept the law and he gives us his righteousness so that we may enter in and know you and worship you, the God of all of creation. And so Lord, we pray that we would trust you and believe you. Amen.